0: I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Michael Posnanski, associate professor at Naval War College and author of In the Shadow of International Law, published by Oxford University Press. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, John. I appreciate it. So your research focuses on why states choose to engage in covert versus overt action. But Before I ask you to get into your thesis, I want to ask you to talk about the non-intervention principle, broadly speaking. You devote a chapter on this uh, in your book and um, talk to us about the history of that idea.
1: Sure. So before I begin, pardon the clunky caveat that I'm speaking today in my personal capacity and and My views don't represent those of the Naval War College or any other government entity. The non-intervention principle comes out of this idea surrounding sovereignty and the inviability of state borders and the notion that states, uh, by virtue of being states, are free to choose their own form of government and their own kind of systems internally and have sovereign authority therein. And non-intervention is a corollary essentially to sovereignty, the idea that states should refrain when interacting with one another from violating one another's sovereignty. And that idea, although it's existed for a really long time since the Peace of Westphalia the 1600s, it doesn't really get written down or what I call codified until the 1930s, first with this agreement between the United States and Latin America in a series of documents that uh, President Roosevelt signs, and then most notably in the UN Charter where Uh, Article 2, Section 4 of the very first uh, series of provisions in the UN Charter outlines this idea of non-intervention, that states should be free from unwanted territorial or political interference. So you write that decision-makers
0: turn to covert action when they lack a legal exemption to the non-intervention principle. Um, Basically, your argument is that they'll pursue regime change openly when they can find a legal exemption but um, they'll act covertly otherwise. What does this say about how U.S. leaders understand international law? I mean, I think you're making the argument that this at least suggests that leaders view international law and specifically the non-intervention principle as a constraint that would push them in the direction of covert action. It doesn't stop them from acting, but it's a constraint, right?
1: That's precisely correct, John. I think there's The book is trying to resolve this tension between what you might think of as advocates or proponents of the role of international law in foreign policy and skeptics. So the proponents basically argue that international law does exert a meaningful and independent constraint on state behavior, at least under certain conditions. And the skeptics argument is basically that international law exerts virtually no influence on foreign policy and that when leaders, whether in the United States or elsewhere, are interested in doing something and the thing they wanna do conflicts with international law, they're essentially always going to choose their self-interest over complying with law. And so this book is trying to complicate that story a little bit and say uh, to the skeptics, you are right that international law has not really prevented states from doing what they wanted, but what they're missing is the fact that policymakers have been interested in at least managing the optics of compliance with international law. So that's where the idea of secrecy and covert action comes in, that policymakers, at least under certain conditions, might hide the fact that they're violating international law for a variety of reasons, which isn't a perfect constraint, but it's also not quite uh, the negative story that skeptics would portray about it.
0: Quickly, just to play devil's advocate here, and, and this may be close to what you refer to as the clever lawyers phenomenon, but the cost of kind of putting up window dressing is is pretty low. I think it's what's called propaganda. Uh, one reading of, of your argument, it sort of sounds like could be, hey, the mafia retains lawyers that make legal defenses of mafia crimes. So the mafia must respect law and feel compelled to follow it. Uh, wh- why is that not a, a proper critique?
1: Yeah. So the clever lawyer's argument uh, it, along the lines of what you were just articulating is basically the notion that my argument that policymakers, when they lack a, an exemption to the non-intervention principle, which would be something like a self-defense claim or authorization from an international body like the Security Council, are going to pursue covert action. The idea behind the clever lawyer's critique or counter-argument is that governments employ large teams of lawyers to invent pretexts or justifications for violating non-intervention. And so that actually, whenever they're interested in doing it or using overt action and so on, They'll just use their big teams of lawyers to invent a pretext. I think the pushback that I would make against that argument is kind of twofold. One is that it's certainly always possible for leaders to invent some sort of justification or manufacture a pretext for action, even one that's not particularly plausible. I think in those cases, the primary audience of those pretexts is domestic. So you might think about Russia. Uh, and Vladimir Putin's justifications, uh, faulty justifications for the invasion of Ukraine or other incursions over the last eight years, and say, of course, the international community doesn't really buy that. But in an authoritarian country, where you're able to manipulate information uh, a little more easily, then it might be more readily available to you to persuade public that you're doing something under false pretenses. But when it comes to convincing international audiences, which is the argument I'm making in the book that the U.S. takes that seriously, at least under certain conditions, credibility does matter. And so it's possible always to invent a pretext, but to, to invent one that would actually be credible enough that others would take it seriously is quite difficult. So self-defense claims or international authorization uh, from a body, whether the Security Council, the Organization of American States, or another one, there is; those options do provide some opportunities for what you might think of as forum shopping, right? Basically, choosing the option that's going to give me the pretext I want. But forums are limited, and policymakers, when they lack one of those options, are actually constrained if they want their actions to be believed abroad rather than just domestically.
0: So that uh, you mentioned the audience here that that you argue uh, is the target for. Uh, this kind of um, false pretense. Uh, why, why do you, th- how, how can you establish? You, you do some of this through just um, going through the records and finding contemporaneous testimony, but h- why do you conclude that it's the international community that's the target? Because, kind of, when I look at it, I don't think anyone, I mean, US decision makers are trying to influence perceptions for sure and they're trying to hide the fact that they very frequently violate the non-intervention principle. But the group that this tends to work on is the U.S. public. I I mean, who in the leadership of America's allies or adversaries around the world is really unaware uh, or is somehow tricked by the scheme here?
1: Yeah, there are at least several audiences that policymakers surely care about. One of them, I think you're right, is clearly domestic audiences. And in the book, I make the argument, which I'll get into in a second, that international audiences enjoy some sort of special status when it comes to policymakers' concerns, but it's clearly not the only one. Surely, they care about persuading domestic uh, publics that the justification for intervention is right and that they ought to support it. This was definitely the case in the lead-up to the Iraq War, of course, as the Bush administration tried to mount a case against Saddam Hussein. Part of that was for international audiences, but a large part of that was to get domestic support uh, for the war uh, through congressional authorization and other things. So I wouldn't say it's, um, wouldn't rule out domestic audiences as a relevant actor, but I would say international audiences enjoy a special status. And the reason for that is policymakers in the post-war era are interested in maintaining the perception that they're complying with the liberal international or rules-based order. And so using secrecy strategically to conceal violations of the non-intervention principle um, to pursue an action that policymakers view as important for national security is one way in which they do that. Now, you raise a really interesting question, which is why would anybody believe them? I presume the thrust of your question is that Covert action rarely stays covert, and plausible deniability is really hard. This is a question I kind of sidestep in the book, but I do have this really interesting quote from a senior CIA official, uh, Richard Bissell, from the early 1960s. He's asked basically, why did you continue the fiction that the United States was not covertly supporting these rebels in Cuba against Fidel Castro once it was plastered all over the New York Times? And basically what he said was the United States retained technical deniability. In other words, it was really difficult for others to definitively prove that the United States wasn't intervening covertly. And so that was enough for the administration. I think it would be a great project, a great follow on to explore the conditions under which policymakers are willing to march forward with covert action and maintain the fiction of plausible deniability, given that it's often so difficult to do so.
0: So uh, does it work on anybody? Like, Is there any evidence that any leader anywhere in the world uh, accepts the... um, In your book, it's it's a false notion that the United States adheres to international law.
1: Yeah, the cop-out answer is we don't know what we don't know. So there might be cases of successful covert action. I'd be surprised if there weren't uh, that we don't know about and therefore would answer your question in a really affirmative way that Yes, it does sometimes work, Uh, but in the case of some of these more controversial or large-scale covert operations involving regime change, I do think that in many cases, even if the full details aren't known, the fact that the United States uh, or other countries were engaging in covert action is often known contemporaneously. Having said that, you know, some of the key details do remain classified for long periods of time. And so a lot of it might come off as speculation and give policymakers some breathing room. So I think just a few years ago, the documents surrounding U.S. covert action in Iran in 1953 were just declassified. Now, that operation has been known about for a long time and written about extensively. But there are still details that are coming out about the nature of uh, those operations through declassification. And so I think One way of maybe viewing it is that policymakers see covert action as a way of buying them time. So there might be speculation in the short term, and it might reduce the international costs associated with an action, even if it's likely to come out in the future. Um, Whether or not they're actually um, persuaded by the fact that even if it's in the New York Times, but not totally audited, that others will believe they weren't involved is a separate question, but a good one. So different
0: tactics are associated with different options and often I think the overt options are very costly and seem to carry high escalation risks. Why doesn't this mere risk assessment explain the behavior of why states choose covert versus overt?
1: It's a good question. So overt action and covert action each have their own distinctive pros and cons. advantages of covert action we've already been talking about. It gives the intervener plausible deniability and therefore helps them manage a host of risks, escalation risks, domestic backlash, international backlash, and so forth. The downside of covert action is that you're far more limited in what you're able to do in a variety of ways. So oftentimes you can't use your own personnel in an operation. You have to outsource it to a third party. Those third parties, so insurgents, in a foreign country or disaffected military officers might not share your goals or your, uh, your kind of drive to achieve a certain objective. So there might be some mismatch between what you as the covert sponsor want to achieve and what they're willing to provide for you or how hard they're going to work at it. And also you have to do all sorts of things to conceal your role that create other sorts of risks. It's inefficient, it's more costly, the third parties whom you're funneling resources to might be skimming off the top. Uh, we actually read about this in the New York Times uh, pertaining to the Obama administration's covert support for the Free Syrian Army. There were reports by David Sanger and others that the arms that were being supplied through Jordan and then being distributed to uh, the rebels in Syria, some of those were being funneled so uh, or skimmed off the top. So Covert action does have its own risks. As you were alluding to, overt action is not a panacea either. The benefits of overt action are that you can control more readily the personnel. You don't have to hide uh, the fact that you're supplying particular arms to the extent that you are providing them abroad. And you also can help signal resolve or a level of seriousness uh, by doing overt action that you can't do in the case of covert action. But the downsides as you alluded to, or you might get bogged down in a quagmire. If you fail, it might tarnish your reputation rather than actually bolstering your reputation. And so in another article, I kind of look at how leaders weigh these trade-offs because it's not evidently clear, right? As I said, they both have pros and cons. Which way do leaders go? And the argument I make in in this other article is that A, overt action does tend to be the riskier of the two options. And that B, policymakers are more inclined to adopt that risky option when they're doing things like preventing a friendly regime from falling than when engaging in something like regime change, which would be a net gain for them, but one in which they don't currently have. Uh,
0: Covert action is also a way to subvert foreign populations, though, right? I mean, if the U.S. outright invades a country the people will take offense. They'll grow livid with nationalism, possibly start an insurgency. On the other hand, if a regime is perceived to have changed as a result of some internal domestic actors instead of a foreign one, the focus of the people's anger will be misdirected there. Um, Why is that not uh, an explanation for why states go covert?
1: Oh, that that absolutely is. I mean, there's no question in the covert action cases I look at in the book and elsewhere that fears of nationalism or stirring up nationalism in the target state was often viewed as a reason not to overtly intervene abroad. So in the book, I, at, I look at the Nixon administration's intervention in Chile against Salvador Ande. And my core argument there is that the lack of a justification for violating non-intervention was a big contributing factor to the appeal of secrecy, but certainly not the only one they talk explicitly in National Security Council meetings that are declassified and elsewhere about the threat of a nationalist backlash and actually rallying the population in Chile around Salvador Allende, who was the leader at the time. And you also see that in Cuba. My understanding is that some of the dynamics surrounding the war on terror and patterns of things like drone strikes uh, also had that kind of dynamic in mind that you're talking about, where the host government, might support U.S. counterterrorism operations, but don't want to be seen as cooperating too closely with the United States. And so part of the impetus then for covert action or plausible deniability is not because the United States doesn't say it's engaging in counterterrorism missions, right? But that the host government might not want to announce that it's cooperating in that regard. So I think you're absolutely right that that plays a key role in covert action decisions. Well, let's get into
0: more of your cases. Uh, you discuss the Bay of Pigs, uh, which is a very interesting sort of deep dive into that. Uh, what would you say about uh, the Bay of Pigs case?
1: When a lot of people think about the Bay of Pigs, uh, they think about the disastrous failed covert invasion in April of 1961, which eventually leads to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I think that's that's right. Uh, but just to provide some broader context here, because I think it's important. Um, Fidel Castro comes to power in 1959, and at first, the United States uh, and the Eisenhower administration is willing to entertain the prospect that they might be able to work with Castro. But it becomes pretty evident soon thereafter that Castro is embracing communism and tilting towards the Soviet Union, whereas at least trending in that direction. So Eisenhower actually initiates the process of a covert operation to unseat or oust Fidel Castro by creating this small band of Cuban exiles to land on the beaches of Cuba, stir up this big revolt, and hopefully, in the eyes of the Eisenhower administration, depose Fidel Castro. The operation doesn't take off under his administration. It's handed off to the new Kennedy administration in January of 1961. And Kennedy does make some tweaks in order to further maintain plausible deniability, hearkening back to what we were talking about earlier, And those tweaks actually further undermine the potential effectiveness of the operation. I don't want to make it seem like the operation would have succeeded otherwise, but certainly the tweaks he made didn't help. And so in April of 1961, the 1500 or so Cuban exiles land on the beach and are met by Castro's overwhelming uh, military and defeated pretty handily. And afterwards, the Kennedy administration says something or Kennedy himself says something like, um, uh, victory has a thousand fathers, but defeat is an orphan. I think it comes out of that case. And when a lot of people think about the Bay of Pigs and why first Eisenhower and then Kennedy opted for covert action and secrecy, my sense is they have in their minds escalation risks. So the United States is unwilling to openly intervene in Cuba because of escalation risks with the Soviet Union. My sense is a lot of that is driven by the Cuban Missile Crisis, which happens in October of the following year, right? One of the closest instances uh, during the Cold War, we came to a nuclear confrontation. And while escalation concerns were certainly a factor in how they were thinking about the pros and cons of covert action against Castro, they actually weren't that relevant in 1960 and 1961. And the reason is the Bay of Pigs actually pushed Castro closer to the Soviet Union. So it was only in the aftermath of that operation that escalation concerns became more salient. And so the core argument I make about that case is non-intervention and concern about alienating lots of countries in Latin America and elsewhere by violating non-intervention uh, was one of the primary reasons why policymakers opted for secrecy, in addition to the nationalist set of considerations that we were talking about a moment ago.
0: What was the central motivation for the Reagan administration's intervention in Grenada? You can sort of provide the context for what happened, but uh, it's such a strange case to me that I, I, and I never feel like I've really pinned down what made them really want to intervene in that case.
1: Yeah, so this is a case, a lot of people, when they think about military interventions, they might know, uh, but you know, a small country in the Caribbean, the Reagan administration intervenes in 1983 uh, to depose uh, the New Jewel Movement, which was kind of a socialist, communist uh, dictatorship there and help install democracy. So there's been a lot of discussion about why intervene. Part of it, I think, was strategic, that just like in Cuba in the 1960s, The Reagan administration was fearful that the regime in Grenada would essentially become an outpost or a base for Soviet disruption throughout the hemisphere. This is kind of a a constant theme. In addition to just wanting to prevent Soviet satellites from popping up, they are actually worried about this strategic location and the capacity for both Cuba and the Soviet Union to use it for subversion throughout the hemisphere. So I think that's one consideration Another, according to Secretary of State George Shultz at the time, was economic motivations. There were questions about sea lane control and disruption to commerce, which I think was another. One of the other explanations I've seen floating around, which is really hard to find in declassified documents, but doesn't mean it wasn't a thing, is the Reagan administration is trying to find some case to throw off the shackles of Vietnam syndrome and show that the United States isn't going to be inhibited from using military force. Uh, which they kind of had been um, in the aftermath of the Vietnam quagmire that wrapped up in the the early, mid-1970s. So that's one motivation. It's hard to find that. And the reason I say that is you're very unlikely to get policymakers sitting around uh, at an NSC meeting saying, we really need to deploy the United States military to disabuse anyone that were constrained or hamstrung by Vietnam syndrome. So I think it might have been a contributing factor. It's hard to validate in the record, but it doesn't mean it wasn't kind of on their minds.
0: It's interesting to apply your analysis to US policy in the Middle East around the Arab Spring. You you take a look at Libya versus Syria. Do you want to talk about the, the contrast in the approach there?
1: Yeah. So I use the Libya and Syria cases as contrasting uh, episodes where the United States and the Obama administration specifically pursued really different policies. So uh, listeners might recall that in Libya, the United States led, along with NATO, a military action to help Libyan rebels, and which ultimately led to uh, Muammar Gaddafi's ouster. And that operation, at least nominally, was sanctioned by the UN Security Council. You'll find in the aftermath that Russia felt that um, the United States abused the authorization of the grant of authority that was given to it uh, and went above and beyond that and pursued Regime change, but there was a Security Council authorization for military force no- nonetheless. And the claim there is that's all the justification the Obama administration needed to openly pursue regime change or at least facilitate regime change against Gaddafi by protecting uh, the Libyans um, from Gaddafi and his forces. In Syria, by contrast, you see a very different story. Bashar al Assad is also a beleaguered leader at the time facing civil war. And the Obama administration is really interested in supporting the Free Syrian Army, but he's reluctant to do so openly. And my argument there, based just primarily on, on um, major outlet, news story outlets at the time in the New York Times and the Washington Post, is that the lack of either UN authorization or at least any sort of legal justification for supporting them was a big inhibitor and led them to pursue covert action. It is, of course, really important to note that there's another big elephant in the room when it comes to intervention in Syria, and that is escalation with Russia. So Russia, although not immediately, they begin to provide overt military support on behalf of Assad against the rebels. And it's clear again from news stories at the time that Obama is deeply concerned about the risk of a direct clash with Russia. And so it lends further support or credence to the idea that covert action is basically the only option on the table. I want to ask you about something you call hypocrisy costs.
0: First of all, you cite Martha Finnemore's paper, which is such a compelling paper. I've read it several times uh, and I find it persuasive, but um, I'm, I'm a little I mean, so you argue covert action helps states retain credibility and evade hypocrisy costs let's do it this way. Can you define hypocrisy costs? And then maybe, here's the tough one, give examples where it has damaged a state's uh, national security. Because the part of the way I see it is that the United States is very consistently hip, hypocritical uh, on, on this score, and it doesn't really face costs from the international community except to prove to them that uh, we're, we're hypocrites.
1: The idea behind hypocrisy costs is there's some mismatch, and I'm drawing on on Fenimore's excellent article. There's some mismatch between the moral or normative commitments states say they believe in or subscribe to and their actual behavior, right? This is actually no different or more complicated from thinking about hypocrisy in everyday life, right? Politician commits, politician X commits to some policy and takes money from an interest group, you know, a- against that policy or something like that. So it's not Theoretically, more complicated than that in its pure kind of definitional form. It's a mismatch between words and deeds, and the idea of hypocrisy costs is: are when you take an action that is inconsistent with your moral or normative commitments, you incur these these hypocrisy costs, which you could think of as maybe a loss of legitimacy or credibility as a moral authority on on some particular issue, and. The case a lot of people might point to would be maybe the Iraq War in 2003. That is a complicated one because it's the motivations are many, as as you know, right? You could think about oil, democracy promotion, security interests in the region. But the basic idea is the United States committed to, long before Iraq, working through the Security Council and with multilateral partners, at least with NATO and other kinds of uh Allies and partners on that score, and so when the Bush administration intervenes unilaterally, although it's couched in ostensibly liberal values, the United States is behaving inconsistently with this idea that it it cooperates with other nations, and it views things like sovereignty and non-intervention as really important. And so, in the immediate aftermath of the Iraq War, there was a lot of writing about the loss of legitimacy uh, for the United States and the Bush administration, and that can have real consequences in terms of counterbalancing uh, and things like that. Of course, states were limited in what they could do in the early 2000s because it was still the unipolar period where the United States was the only great power in town. But some scholars and, and other writers were talking about forms of resistance to US policy that I don't actually think you would have seen had the Bush administration refrained from intervention. Of course, that's maybe an overdetermined case, right? That's not unique to hypocrisy costs, but I think the idea of hypocrisy in that case was a a core element of why there was so much resistance to it.
0: What about the case of Nicaragua, where the world court comes and puts forth the decision that the Reagan administration violated international law? Uh, Did the U.S. incur any detectable costs from that?
1: I find that court case so fascinating, right? You're referring to the ICJ decision in in the mid-80s, where where Reagan is supporting uh, the Contras against the Sandinistas. Yeah, the reason I find that um, so interesting and also puzzling is that my recollection is the ICJ basically says the Reagan administration's covert intervention in Nicaragua violated the UN Charter and sovereignty norms. My answer is, of course it did. That's why it was covert. Right. So that's maybe a a separate issue from what you were talking about. But I think it's actually uh, proves the rule in a sense that the reason the Reagan administration was pursuing covert action in that case was precisely because it was inconsistent um, with U.S. commitments to sovereignty in the U.N. charter. You're asking a, a more foundational question, which is, did the Reagan administration actually suffer any cost or consequences for intervening? That case is maybe a little bit hard to say. And the reason is it's so wrapped up in the broader scandal of Iran-Contra, where you know this, but just for, for um, the sake of completeness, there there were restrictions on, at the time, the United States selling weapons to Iran. But Oliver North at the National Security Council initiated this process where the United States would secretly sell arms to Iran and use those proceeds to fund the Contras, in Nicaragua over the objection of uh, Congress and the U.S. public and so forth. And so that case is a little bit hard to say uh, in terms of its ramifications internationally, because I think when people think about that case, they immediately go to Iran-Contra and the scandal that eventually led to its unraveling. I would say that when covert operations are exposed, and that's certainly a case of it The Reagan administration, I I haven't looked into this too much, but they might have incurred more costs in that case because the fact of U.S. covert involvement was so public, right? There were congressional hearings surrounding it, whereas in cases like Chile or the Bay of Pigs, presidents largely avoid um, having to answer questions uh, so publicly and so therefore might be able to retain some plausible deniability. Although I do want to say for the record, in Chile you do get these big congressional investigations after the Nixon administration with the church committee and the Senate and the whole series of scandals that eventually leads to the creation of the intel committees now. So that would be an interesting thesis, whether covert operations that are just reported in the news but still technically deniable, uh, whether leaders face less costs for in those cases than they do in covert action cases that are exposed to such a high degree that you're actually having hearings about them, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case, but I haven't actually looked at that directly.
0: Right. Yeah, my memory from the Finamore paper is that basically U.S. hypocrisy runs the risk of kind of eroding the normative nature of the 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 order, the system that we have, um, and and that's certainly a cost. But I, it seems separate from this notion of hypocrisy costs incurred by the state, the you know the actor in question. And if if it's hard to demonstrate that costs are born, it might present a problem for your thesis, I think. But since we're on the question of sort of methodology, uh, I was curious, you stuck to regime change, not covert versus overt action generally. Perhaps that's too broad a scope, I don't know. But do you think that a broader data set would show basically the same calculations that you've argued decision makers engage in over regime change operations.
1: Yeah. Can I actually return very quickly to the hypocrisy discussion and then I'll sure, answer please, your question? Please do. So I think, you know, the idea behind hypocrisy costs is that other states want to feel like they're following the right kind of leader or the right kind of great power. And so the reason I want to return to it is it's so important for the competition the United States is now in with China and to a lesser degree, Russia You've seen China, I think, unsuccessfully try to call attention to what they argue is U.S. hypocrisy. There were these propaganda stories when the George Floyd protests happened uh, and other kinds of instances where China seeks to undermine the legitimacy or moral authority of the U.S. So when I say hypocrisy costs matter, that's kind of what I mean. It's, it's a bit diffuse and it's hard to quantify To a degree, but I think it's essential for when we're thinking about what constraints policymakers face, kind of some of the things we're observing when it comes to propaganda from Russia and China. It's often trying to draw attention to a mismatch between words and deeds. The second thing I wanted to say about it is it's a bit of a research design uh, issue where if my argument is right, you shouldn't see policymakers that often brazenly violating. Their normative and moral commitments, right? They should select into doing it covertly. And so assessing whether or not there are costs is is challenging in that regard. Although, as you pointed out, one way we might look at it is covert operations that are exposed pretty spectacularly. Okay. On to your question about uh, overt and covert intervention generally, as opposed to just regime change. So in this uh, in, the, in the book, In the Shadow of International Law, that's exactly what I do. I focus only on regime change for tractability, but a broader understanding of overt and covert intervention that doesn't just involve regime change and say might involve interventions to prop up a government I actually does tell a quite different story. So what I do in that article I mentioned uh, a few moments ago is try to ask the question, Why do policymakers sometimes pursue very risky interventions, including those that seem to create nationalist backlash and maybe create some tension with allies uh, and and rivals in some cases, but not others? And the answer I arrive at in that article is it matters a lot whether leaders are pursuing an intervention to maintain the status quo or to improve the status quo. Interventions to maintain the status quo include those that are aimed at shoring up an ally or a partner or a regime abroad. So regime X is under threat from civil war or external intervention. The United States intervenes to defend them. You could think about Korea. You could think about Vietnam, Lebanon in 1958, cases like that. The U.S. defending allies and partners abroad. And they can do that overtly or covertly, but that's kind of maintaining the status quo. Improving the status quo are interventions where you face a hostile government abroad and you're trying to swap them out, essentially, with a more favorable government. That would be Iraq 2003. You're trying to depose Saddam and put in a more friendly government. That would be improving the status quo. The argument I make in that article is operations to maintain the status quo are where you will see leaders incurring greater risk then in operations to improve the status quo. And this comes out of psychological theories about law subversion, where we pay more, we expend more costs, we take more risks to keep what we have than we do to improve our current station or situation. So the way to reconcile that article with the book is what I look at in the book and I the argument about international law, it's actually a scope. The, the article about improving versus maintaining the status quo, imposes a scope condition on my book. In other words, the cases of regime change, which are status quo improving, are those in which policymakers should exhibit more sensitivity to risk of various kinds, including international law and escalation, nationalism, and so on. And that when it comes to interventions aimed at maintaining the status quo, you're likely to see leaders accepting more risk than you might have thought if you just read the first book and didn't think about those distinctions. It is important to note, you know, maintaining the status quo or helping a country defend itself, it's a little bit complicated because it's not actually a violation of international law. So when South Korea is invaded by North Korea or Kuwait is invaded by Iraq, those countries, those victims, as sovereign states are able to request support from abroad, either individually or collectively. So it's a bit of a different dynamic, doesn't impact international law in the same way, but the broader point stands that leaders should accept more risk in those cases. So it imposes some some limits or guardrails on the, uh, the scope of the first book. Uh, in your book and, I, and
0: at least one of your papers, um, you leave a little bit of space to mention responsibility to protect. Um, do you want to talk about what this is and why you think it might be problematic down the road?
1: R2P emerges in the late 1990s and early 2000s in response to a number of incidents. One was the failure of the international community to stop the Rwandan genocide in 94. And another key incident that led to or contributed to R2P was the Kosovo operation in 1999, where the United States and NATO intervened against Slobodan Milosevic with the aim of protecting Kosovo Albanians without the Security Council's authorization. So I think in the aftermath, I don't know if it was Kofi Annan uh, or, or another senior international leader basically called it illegal but legitimate. And so in the aftermath of inaction in Rwanda and action in Kosovo, the international community thought we need to come up with some standard that prevents that allows us to respond to genocide and humanitarian catastrophes and atrocities, but that are still consistent with our obligations to the United Nations and so forth. So they come up with this idea of responsibility to protect, which revolutionizes in a lot of important ways, our understanding of sovereignty. The traditional understanding of sovereignty was state borders, as we were talking about on the front end, are these kind of inviolable boundaries that States can, and leaders can kind of do whatever they want internally, free from external intervention. R2P says not so fast. Sovereignty is not just a negative right where you have the free, you you have the right to be free from unwanted interference. There's also affirmative obligations on leaders to protect their populations. And that if they're not doing that, um, it challenges the idea that because you are sovereign, you should be free from interference. And it also imposes affirmative obligations on the international community to do something about it, which you could imagine is quite different from a negative sovereignty right, which says you should largely be free from interference. This actually gives states the obligation to intervene to stop humanitarian catastrophes. Now, the reason this could be problematic or at least misused, I should say, is you can envision scenarios where States, whether the United States, Russia, others, invoke R2P, the need to protect some population abroad. And they use it as a pretext. It's not actually the crisis they're saying it is, or or even if it is, it's not widely accepted. But they say, hey, you've accepted R2P. This is a standard for intervention. I see that you're not acting, but I have an obligation to do so. And it might create opportunities where leaders invoke R2P in scenarios where it's not warranted, as a cover for military intervention or other forms of interference. It is important to to point out that the document that articulates R2P, which came out, I think, in 2005 by this big commission, it does say that R2P is supposed to be enacted through this the UN system. And what they mean by that is you still need Security Council authorization. We have an obligation to act, but you still need to do it through the mechanisms and apparatus of the United Nations. So that should theoretically put a check on it, but you can imagine scenarios where where states try to wiggle out of that and invoke it in scenarios when it's not widely supported.
0: Yeah, it's always been interesting to me with respect to debates about R2P is that almost everyone has the implicit assumption that it's the United States that can act on this new invented legal power. And uh, if China has you know, that excuse, or Russia has that excuse, I don't think most of the advocates would be too pleased. I want to ask you about something. I'll ask your pardon to, uh, to quote you at length. Um, you write, investigating covert intervention is interesting for a related reason. There are very few unqualified success stories. Even when covert intervention worked from the intervener's standpoint its effects were often devastating for the target country. Uh, Can you expand on that and also just tell us what that means? If covert action is so consistently uh, a failure, uh, what should that tell us about its continued use?
1: The idea there is that for policymakers contemplating covert action, the history that I got to look at in the book and elsewhere should be a bit of a cautionary tale. So in, in many cases of covert action during the Cold War, for example, and I think around that quote or afterwards, I mentioned the case of Guatemala, where covert action in 1954 contributed to a major civil war that lasted for decades. Or in the case of Chile, Salvador Allende is eventually ousted and replaced by Augusto Pinochet, who's a dictator for nearly 20 years and a pretty brutal one at that. And so... The idea is policymakers, when they're thinking about pursuing covert action, ought to think long and hard about its record and how to avoid some of those calamities if they truly believe that it's in the national interest uh, and, and there are no other good options. It is also interesting that I think it was in a New York Times article around when the Obama administration was thinking about covert action in Syria basically suggested that Obama asked for an audit or a historical summary of covert action successes and failures, and the answer he got back was it rarely succeeds. So kind of consistent with that with that basic idea that it often doesn't do what it's intended to do, and it might even have negative side effects in a lot of cases. So this doesn't mean, you know, I, also when people think about covert action, I think a lot of times their minds go to something really nefarious, and in some cases, there's support for that because leaders are turning to secrecy uh, to support coups and, and, and other forms of intervention. But it need not be, right? Covert action can be used to manage escalation. Covert action can be used to intervene in situations where it might actually be legitimate, but for one reason or another, the international community is not supportive of it. Right. So there there are clearly cases that in the late 90s, for example, this is not a covert action case, but the Clinton administration intervenes uh, against Iraq in Operation Desert Fox in 1998 to punish Saddam for noncompliance with weapons inspections, even though Russia, China and France wouldn't support it on the Security Council. So you might suggest I'm, I'm not taking a stand one way or the other. But you might suggest there are cases like that where the U.S. is within its authority to act, but it might not want to do so openly and unilaterally. Um, Having said that, yeah, the the quote you mentioned is uh, meant to draw attention to the fact that unintended consequences seem to be a pretty pervasive feature of covert action, and so it would be incumbent upon any leader contemplating it to take stock of what went wrong, why it went wrong, and how to try to avoid some of those failures in the future. And if they're unable to do so, to think long and hard about whether no action is preferable to a covert action that might spin out of control.
0: Michael Posnansky, thank you so much for talking with us today.
1: Thanks, John. Really appreciate it.